Hello, everybody. My name is Rob O'Sell, filling in for Tracy Lee for another episode in our series about engineering leadership. Today, I'm here with David Kramer, the co-founder and CTO at Sentry. David, how are you doing? Uh, I'm great, Rob. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so glad to have you here. Now, listen, um, I'm sure many people uh, are familiar with Sentry, but for those of you that aren't familiar with Sentry, aren't familiar with your journey, can you kind of give a little introduction to what it is you do at Sentry and kind of how you arrived in this position? Yeah, so, I mean, I started the Sentry project a long time ago. It was an open source project, so one random thing. Um, eventually kicked off a business with my co-founder who runs our design organization. Uh, I've done a little bit of everything along the way, but sort of my core is, um, I'm a software engineer. I'm still super technical these days focus a lot more on strategy, whatever that means to you. Uh, it's kind of a intentionally vague word. Um, but I really st try to stay plugged into what's going on and, and try to, I guess, be as informed as I possibly can be to develop opinions about what we're doing and, and what I think we should and shouldn't do these days. So, and, uh, and for context, Sentry, if you don't know, is um, at its core and what it started as was basically an error monitoring service. So I always like to use the Uber app example. You like load Uber, it crashes. Sentry tells the Uber team about that. But we've kind of expanded or have been working on expanding beyond that over the years to go more broad. Um, and that same sort of scenario, the Uber app, it's like, well, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. They're not all crashes, but they're usually caused by the software team uh, creating some problems one way or another. And so Sentry really just tries to service that use case. Like things go wrong. How do we help people solve those problems? So the, the impact of customers is less and, and we can kind of get back to, to building things. Now there's a lot of things that make Sentry interesting and sort of unique in this space. Uh, one of them you outlined in a recent blog post, which is just the amount of time it was, as you said, an open source library solving a very localized problem before it sort of evolved into a company that sort of rapidly found that product market fit, uh, and then sort of grew very quickly from there. And that being sort of an interesting part of your approach. So I was kind of curious if you could kind of explain for people Sentry's approach to growth and, and how you've tried to evolve the product in the company over time. Yeah. So we are similar to some companies, I would say, but not very similar to a lot of companies in the traditional IT enterprise B2B space. And what I mean by that is pretty early on. And I think this was just driven out of personal desires from myself and the people we hired. Like we, we focused on building a company that just could service as many people as possible. And the way I, I rationalize this is like the, the most enjoyable times in life are like you show up at a conference and talk to all your buddies about what you're working on and they all use your software or something along those lines, right? Like you just instantly have like connections. And so we took that approach really quickly in life and we're like, well, how do we make sure our technology can work with a lot of people or work for everybody basically? And we've kept that through as, as we turned it into a business and then turned it into a venture-backed business and then have, have been continuing to grow along the years. And um, what that looks like these days, and, and I'll give some comparatives, is Century has uh, somewhere around 50,000 paid customers. And, and a customer for us is like a company. And so it's not one individual. It's a lot of individuals per companies. And that, that number is pretty significant because you will not find another company in our space that has nearly as many customers and that doesn't mean there aren't other successful companies. Of course, some of them make a lot more money than us, uh, but it means our approach has been like wildly different. And so like our price points, like $29 to get going and things like that. And, and we really focus on that. Uh, we're actually working on coining this and, and sort of articulating it right now. We focus on this almost like bottoms up sales strategy, where it's just like, how can we sort of generate mass adoption with a revenue model that aligns with that, that 
we will probably make money as long as more people continue to adopt what we build. And so there's been this like intense focus on just like, how do we help developers? How do we build technology and, and products that are very centric on that core customer persona, that, that software engineer. And then there's a little bit of bias in there where we also take that to, to a more extreme. And we say, well, we focus on the software engineer that is kind of shipping uh, sort of emerging technology. And if you're, if you're in the technology scene, you should just think of that as JavaScript. Um, it's kind of been this massive wave of change for the last few years in the industry. And so it's things like browser-based applications or things like your Slack app, which is like a new technology paradigm and stuff like that. And so we really focus on that use case. And I'm not going to say it's coincidence that we focus on that, but coincidentally, the use case that we focus on also happens to be the largest segment of the market. Um, and one that applies pretty universally across technology companies. And so, so a lot of things shake out of that, how we build the business, how we think about product, how we structure things. Um, but it is somewhat unique in that regard. And I, I think there's very few companies, honestly, that I've ever seen that have a similar model and have been successful, um, like Dropbox or Atlassian or even GitHub a little bit feel similar to me in, in aspects, but every company is also slightly unique. So. Well, certainly I know a lot of people would love to know how to grow to that many, you know, paying customers and, in, in, you know, in a service model. And I think there's different approaches to doing that. Sure, a, a very natural way when you're trying to find that fit is to go find the types of people who would be your customer, see what problems they're having, solve those problems, or perhaps build an MVP of a, of a system and then ask people, what are, what, what doesn't this do for you? And then sort of incrementally evolve it from there. And kind of curious if these are the approaches that you took at Century, and if not, you know, what is y'all's attitude to how you, you know, again, get this sort of mass adoption, uh, you know, incrementally building up the system? Yeah. At some point, I want to reverse engineer like the early days a little bit more because I haven't quite figured out if there was like one thing we did that was really smart or several things or what it really was. But like at some point, we got to a point where there's definitely people using the product and we were just really reactive, like, how do we service them better? How do we find more of them? And again, I, I mentioned, like, we sort of target this subset of the persona. So, like, my analogy there is, like, we go after JavaScript, not Java. And it doesn't mean we don't have developers using both technologies. But the way, the way companies adopt software and build new software also happens to align with when they buy new software or adopt new services, right? And so, if you're building a new mobile app, you might look for new technology to support or to use to develop that mobile app, right? And so, we recognize that as, like, just that's how the market often works. Um, because if you've got some old, I don't know, nuclear silos or something, you're probably not installing random new monitoring software <laughs> on your on your thing that never changes, right? And so we recognize sort of that, and then we just latch onto that wave. And I, I think over the years, our strategy, honestly, was like always make it available. Like um, what I mean by this was like Century was open source from the get go. It's a little bit different these days. It's it's complicated and nuanced, but we have a proprietary license that we think of as eventually open source. Uh, but it's still, you can self-host it for free. Uh, and that was important because, for example, that allows, say, a government agency to actually run Century. Or early days, it allowed hmm. people in um, kind of any kind of company to run Century, whether we could support them or not, whether we sold a SaaS service or not. So it allowed, the, allowed us to like penetrate a market that otherwise you might not have as customers. And I will tell you, we don't make any money on that. But then I will also tell you, nobody else does, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and that's a really important idea that we had early on. We, we used to say, like, um, I remember in our seed, seed stage pitches, I literally told the investors when they're like, how are you going to monetize this? And, and mind you, we, we had revenue at the time. Uh, I'm like, it doesn't matter. If we can't make money, nobody will. And that, that was the mindset that went into this. Like, we were going to, like, absolutely build the best thing, make sure it was available. And we, we assumed we would make the sort of the revenue mechanics work. And I, we've roughly mm. done that at this point. 
Um, in fact, early days, our, our margins were phenomenal. Uh, we got to, we got to <laughs> tweak some of this as we grow, but, uh, but so, we, so the way we did that is like, you know, we started with availability. So it was self-hostable for free open source back in the day. Uh, the price point was, has always been really low. There's some, I mean, actually, uh, I have a, a post I'm going to, uh, ship Monday that talks about our early days pricing. So I won't spoil too much of that. But like one lesson we learned along the way was like, there is a balance of charging too little, not that you should charge more. It's just that some things are not worth charging, like because the revenue will just mm -hmm. never add up to something like meaningful. Right. Um, but we, we tried to always make it sure it was as affordable as possible. Like we didn't need an arbitrary high price. We didn't need a salesperson that you had to talk to, to adopt the product. It's like, how do we use the efficiency of technology, say self-serve stripe, things like this, make it so as many people as possible that wanted to use it could use it. And then from there, and that, that's still part of like how you build the product, but from there it's like, okay, they can use it if they want to use it. How do we make it so more people can use it? And then we just sort of assume they will want to use it because it's good. And that, that's mostly how we operate and, and making more people so they can use it. It meant things like supporting new language, like programming languages. So, you know, we started as Python, we went to Ruby and JavaScript and Java and PHP and pretty much every language under the sun. Um, and then it's like, okay, compliance is a reason or, uh, data residency is now a current generation reason of if people can use technology or not. And so we always look for those things. It's like, what is the largest objection that prevents our core audience from being able to use our product? And then we just go try to tackle those. And it was that on repeat for, I guess, the better part of a decade. How do you keep control though, over what you're doing and how you can continue to evolve and remain agile? If again, you know, you have supporting people in different uh, languages and even the self-hosting versus the, you know, the, the, the SaaS model, because it feels like, you know, you're, you're planning to, you know, maybe release a new paid feature and then you have to consider what that does or how that affects the self-hosted model. And you, you get kind of that shackles and then suddenly, or fragmentation in the platform. Like, how are you keeping a cohesive vision of what you're trying to build as, as it's reaching everybody, I guess. Yeah, I, I think, I actually think that's the easiest problem. It just requires you having an opinion and creating constraints. My favorite story about this, by the way, so early days, early days century, this was especially complicated because we're trying to generate revenue. We'd already raised money, right? And we're like, how do we grow revenue faster? We're all engineers. We're sort of just winging it, right? We had a lot of customers though. We had, we had validation that like there was something there. And one of the most contentious things early days was we have a SaaS service. We have this open source self-hosted thing. How do we get those big open source customers? Like Uber was a good example of a big customer back in the day. A customer, as in they, they were, they used Sentry, they didn't pay us. How do we get them to just move to SaaS and pay us? Well, the answer is we didn't, we never did. And I don't I assume they don't even use Sentry anymore. And there's two important things we took away with this. One, it actually didn't matter because eventually people left Uber. They went to new companies. Those companies bought our SaaS service. So it turns out that was a totally fine investment. And this is why I defend open sources like, one of the, the greatest business advantages you can create, um, not even open source, it's almost like a freemium model is a better way to think about it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't have to monetize every single customer and that's super important. The other side and the, the more interesting side was we constantly had this challenge, especially between sales and not sales. And sales was like three people versus, I don't know, 30, 40 people at this stage of the company, right? Of, oh, we want to charge Uber money or somebody like Uber. Can we sell them support contracts or can we do something else with, or can we build like a, an enterprise on-premises kind of like offering? And we wavered on this idea for so long. And one day I'm just like, you know what? We are SaaS. We are only SaaS. We're never going to talk about this again. And we never have. That's, you know, six some years ago. 
Doesn't mean we couldn't have made money there, but it felt like a distraction, you know? It felt like we didn't really want to do it, yet we kept not making a decision on if we were going to do it or not, that it just kept coming up every day. And that's what I mean by constraints. We said, we're not going to build a SaaS or we're not going to build an on-premise thing, right? It's self-hostable. They can do that. If they want service, they use our SaaS service. That's what we're building. We're building a product at the end of the day, not a services organization. And so there were many decisions like that. And another actually really good example that I think people have struggled with over the years is we said, we're not going to operate in China. Like it's too damn complicated. We have way too many other problems. We don't care about China. Like, and, and just being able to be willing to make those decisions and create these constraints, you can always go back and change your mind later. That's fine. But I just think enough people don't make decisions. They don't decide on a course of action. They're too wrapped up in like, is it right or not? And it actually doesn't matter. It just matters that you make the decision and you recognize if it's not right and you go change the decision, of course. But like, it's just the paralysis of that inability to make decisions is all that's missing in a lot of cases. And so you can think about that, whether it's like what product you're building, who your audience is, like all shapes of things to me are get as close to a binary this way versus this way as possible. It's not always doable, but it, the, the, the more you can do that, I think the better. It's the same as technology, right? Like you build an architecture or something. The best way you could say scale that architecture is by making sure you have clear constraints, clear boundaries and things like that. I think it's the same in business. You know, it allows you to just focus your efforts on the, the problems and understand what the, what success might look like, you know? That's awesome. All right, we're going to come right back to this conversation, but for a moment, we're just going to acknowledge today's sponsor, This.Labs. This.Labs is a development consultancy that is trusted by top industry companies, including Stripe, Zero, Wikimedia, DocuSign, and Twilio. This dot takes a hands-on approach by providing tailored development strategies to help you approach your most pressing challenges with clarity and confidence. Whether it's bridging the gap between business and technology or modernizing legacy systems, you'll find a breadth of experience and knowledge you need. Check out how this.labs can empower your tech journey at this.co. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O. And of course, thank you to my team for allowing me to be able to do this. Now let's get back to our conversation. David, for anybody that was listening just before that, I think they're listening to this idea of saying, you know what, eh, we don't need to monetize Uber. It will work out in the end. And kind of wondering, you know, you, you explained a little bit about getting it down to this, like, I guess, to this binary decision, but like, where do you, how do people build up that concept of what they say that they are? I think it's very tempting to look at the opportunities you have and then to be guided by what it would take to get those opportunities and just assume that you'll continue to figure out how to put the plane on as you're in flight. But it, you know, it takes a certain amount of confidence or maybe madness to look at something that you could potentially secure and to say, you know what, this isn't going to be it for us. Like that's, you know, that's a, that's a lot of leadership <laughs> where, how do you, how do you find that? How are you able to do that? And how do you recommend that people, you know, make that call or find the ability to make that call? Like, are you just using data and letting data be your guide? Like, you know, how are you making this decision? Yeah, I, I think this is a tough one because I actually think unless you can have ego, you're incapable of being a leader. Like, call it ego, arrogance, confidence, pick any flavor of that adjective. Like that is necessary to be able to make decisions in my opinion. And then when you think about data, like data comes from everything. It comes from your own experiences. It comes from feedback you get from others. It might come from like raw data, which I actually think is what people over rotate on as, as a decision tree. Um, but I think you have to be able to build up that confidence and some people naturally have it. And I don't think that alone can make you a great leader, to be clear. I, I think I'm a good leader at some things and a terrible leader at others, for example. Yeah. 
but I'm very good in the sense of I am very confident in basically everything. I, I will say like my 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 motto is strong opinions loosely held, uh, and that may sound like a terrible thing. I love that one. But <laughs> again, I, I I genuinely just think you've got to be willing to make the decision and be willing to be wrong and not care about being wrong. And that is such a critical thing that I, I, I think most leaders actually miss. And I think this is why you see such a delta from the best leadership in the, like our industry, like the, like the sort of the industry titans, right? Like I know a lot of people have this like fascination with Steve Jobs. As far as I understand, he was like crazy, crazy, arrogant, confident, whatever you want to put it, and just like made wild decisions all the time, right? Super successful. Doesn't matter if he's right or wrong. Like at the end of the day, they just did stuff. They tried stuff. They took risks. And I think that risk taking people are afraid right the best lesson i actually got out of this like i am not an executive i'm not a suit by any means but i went to the ceo event there's a bunch of experienced people and the the only actually thing i took away well I, I took away that i'm not one of these people but i also took away that everybody struggles to deal with conflict and effectively making decisions is a form of conflict right they always want to kind of hedge it and and kind of procrastinate on the decision and the most extreme, or at least ext extreme in terms of impact version of this is uh, whether they had to fire somebody or they could coach somebody. Both answers were always like, it always led to having to fire the person for the most part, right? And this was the lesson from a bunch of CEOs. It was also like, uh, there's this famous author and she was, um, she was like, I don't know, chief of staff or somebody that worked really closely with a couple presidents. So not even like our traditional tech or anything like that. Exact same lessons you could take away where the presidents struggle to make these same decisions. And to me, that was like, that was reflective of, I have also struggled to make those same decisions. And it's very hard when it comes to people because yeah, there's a person on the other side, but people also fail to make those decisions, take, take that risk and deal with that conflict when there's not a person on the other side. And so I don't know how you fix that if you have that challenge, but I think you've just got to accept that most decisions, I mean, you should be rational, and especially if it impacts people, you should be much more thoughtful but you guys just got to make it and accept the risk. And as long as, as the risk is fine, again, you can always change your mind later and go back and do something different, right? Like mm -hmm. if we had built the SaaS and it was failing miserably to attract customers and the world demanded data residency or on-premises or something at the time, yeah, we would have been like, okay, the SaaS thing isn't working. Like we went to just kept like trying until it, you know, eventually we ran out of money. Yeah. And it's also either one of those versions is still better than trying to do a little bit of everything, you know? And I, I just I, think, yeah, no, no, I just think that's like super, super critical. And, and it's such an easy concept too. I, I think that's the difference between arrogance and maybe what you would call principled is that, you know, arrogance is going to hold to that initial impression in the face of, uh, of, you know, contradictory evidence and, you know, being principled doesn't have to mean that, uh, you know, I, I like that idea of people owning the middle. You know, maybe a lot of leaders feel like they're caught between their investors or their sales team and their customers and feeling like they're getting contradictory opinions in both directions. And it's like, yeah, that's where you're supposed to be. <laughs> you're yeah. supposed to figure out whether one of them is right or whether they're both wrong or they're both right and, and, and how to thread that needle. Uh, that's a, an interesting and challenging piece of advice for, for leaders. I mean, and that is their data, right? Is the investor saying one thing? It's a bunch of people saying another thing, you just make the decision, you know? And I actually think it's interesting because I've watched far too much TV in my lifetime, right? And there's so many versions of this on TV where it's like kind of, oh, it's always like a powerful man making a decision. And they're usually like the president or Suits is one of, like, I really like the, the show Suits. Um, 
But if you just abstract all of that, it's like they're just showing the person that has the power has the power because they're making decisions. And they're just taking a bunch of inputs and quickly making a decision based on that. And even in those depictions, they're often messing up those decisions. And so I actually think it's like it's in our face all the time, even the people we portray as successful, that they're doing these same things, you know? Um, and it, to me, it is like it's it is such an interesting thing because I see this all over the map. Early stage leaders, whether it's founders, executives, whatever, that problem still exists so many times. And I mean, I'm not a great coach or anything from a from a leadership angle, but I'm just like, I just just do something, like choose a path forward. And then we do it and we figure it out and we see what happens, you know? And I, I think there's probably environments you can create that make that easier for people to do. But I just inherently people are attached to their own decisions. They feel everything's personal. They feel like a decision is a reflection of themselves, which to be fair, it is, you know. Um, but all of those things just create this fear and this unwillingness to sort of choose a course of action in, in honestly, mostly the cases that matter. The cases that don't matter, people are happy to make decisions all the time, you know. So to kind of circle this back to where we started, which is just the scale and the breadth of, of sort of Sentry's uh, customer base, combined with this idea of sort of having these strong opinions weekly held, what do you attribute that success to? Do you, do you think it's that Sentry has found a pretty broad class of people who agree with that vision that you've had? Or is it that these customers are just attracted to the idea of a strong vision? In other words, just a coherent product with a vision is just something that people say, wow, this actually, I understand what this is trying to do. Or, you know, is it a little bit of both? Kind of, is there some way that you can figure out how this, how this vision thing tied back to that broad growth? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to like, there's a market opportunity. And I actually don't think we have much, if vision is such a complicated word, because mm -hmm. I don't think we actually have a lot of product vision. If you think about it from like the, do we have this expected end state? Or like, what's like, mm. okay, you're like SpaceX, like, we're going to Mars. There's like a vision there of exactly what you're going to do kind of thing. I don't think we have that. I think what we have is a lot of principles and conviction and we just kind of, and determination like that. We will like find the right path forward. And we roughly know the problems we're trying to solve. And it, it helps that, you know, we're engineers and we're trying to solve some of our own problems. And this is actually an interesting controversial thing, but I always tell people, I'm like, all we have to do is solve our own problems. Like if we solve them really well for ourselves, where we wow ourselves, I'm confident that it'll just work for other people. That's not always entirely true. Obviously, like there's shades of gray, but it's a good starting point. But that opinion on its own is controversial because it's like, actually people ask me uh, probably at least once a month. They're like, oh, do you think, because I'm very, again, strong opinions all the time. They're often like, well, do you think maybe you're like disconnected from who the customers are these days? Or you don't, mm -hmm. because you haven't been like building a software for so long. And I'm like, I actually don't because I, I still hack on things in my free time. I spend all my time talking to people, whether they're our engineers or our customers or something. And so I at least feel conviction in my decisions still. But even that concept that people are like, how do you, you know, there's, there's one challenge. It's like, how do you have the opinion? Like, how, how can you develop those skills or just to be able to make that decision? And there's the other is like, how do you defend making the decision with people? And I, I think both of them are actually like very complicated. I don't know how you defend. I just say it is what it is. It doesn't matter. Um, but, uh, but both seem to be very prevalent and very common concerns. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, my wife works at a, an entirely different kind of company, a much bigger company. And I even see this casually in her interactions where there's constantly question of, are we making the right decisions, confidence in the decisions being made? Mm -hmm. I see it from like the leaders, from the people on the ground, you know, all over the map. And, and maybe these are just unsolvable problems. I don't know. 
So do you feel that this is a repeatable wisdom? I mean, again, it's like solving our own problems, uh, you know, having these uh, sort of convictions and these principles. And people are like, well, yeah, but, you know, especially in early stage startup, you only have maybe a few flips of the coin. <laughs> and if they all come up tails, then, you know, then the game's up, no matter how much principle you have. Like, is this something that can be, uh, you know, some, something that somebody can do from the beginning? Or do you think that this is a, a luxury of a company that after they've kind of gotten a more secure footing, they can evolve into this mentality? What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we didn't have to do the early stage pivot game show, right? I think in that you've got you've to gotta have an idea and you've got to prove it out, right? And if it fails, you decide, do I just try for a new idea or do I give up? I don't actually think that's wildly different than what we do every day, even at century scale now. And we're like 350 to 400 people. Um, we're still like, we launched a performance product, performance monitoring, like, I don't even know, four years ago. It feels like forever at this point. It's long enough, you know? We're not at product market fit yet. And I'm like, I actually don't care whether we are or not. I'm like, we're not there. So we're going to keep trying, throw it away, try again, throw it away, try again. It doesn't actually matter, right? Like all that matters is we recognize we haven't done it yet. We throw it away and we try again, you know? And <clears throat> that's the same as a startup, right? I think we got lucky that by the time we were sort of established, we did have something that had product market fit. We were very quick to react on monetization strategies. We were very thoughtful about where we invested to gain market share and things like this. So I think we made a lot of easily reproducible decisions. I don't think we knew how valuable those decisions were, you know, at the time we now know. Um, so I think all that's reproducible, but I think the early stage is like another thing I like to tell people. And I just like to come up with these quips that sound clever because <laughs> it feels like I can just exaggerate them and like run like PR training on top of them. But, um, but one I like to say to people, whenever they give me what I find is and it's like the the more bold the idea often the higher the risk it's going to be the less likely it's going to work but often if it does work the outcome is very very significant you know and i actually think one of the biggest mistakes you can make is like an early stage company or a late stage company that is trying to go to their next thing, you know, is like little ideas, incremental ideas don't matter at that point. It's like, if you can come up with something that a few hundred people want, okay, you're going to go nowhere. So it doesn't matter. It might as well not have existed in the first place. So, you know, like, and again, I think we got lucky there, but I think going back to having an opinion, can you, can you reproduce this? And does it work early stage? I think it's like, well, you've got to have an opinion about something that's a big idea. Otherwise it's not going to matter anyways. Like especially like venture capital, they're not investing in small ideas. It's like the whole thesis is like, these things need to become billion dollar businesses. Otherwise the model doesn't work and most of them fail and that's okay, you know? But I, I, I think there's a lot of people, even a bunch of stuff I've angel invested in, I'm like, half the people forget they're building a business, which is one problem. Um, <laughs> and then so many just like, they don't recognize that they haven't hit a home run, but they seem to just keep like tweaking it and assuming somehow it will then become a home run. I, it, it's just one of those things like, maybe you can do that. I don't know. I've never done that. And I've never been able to do that. But it's always been obvious to me, like this is either great or it's not great. And usually you can measure that in one way or another. Um, actually, I think Figma, I, I don't know much about Figma internals. So th this is just like telephone or hearsay for me. But like, 
I remember this story of like when Figma went from not charging to charging money, it just instantly exploded in terms of like revenue, right? And you knew, you knew at that point that the company was going to succeed. It was just a no brainer whatsoever, right? If they had gotten like a small adoption curve, I think you would know that, hey, this company might not actually, like this isn't the, this isn't the thing, like this isn't the answer. But I think another person might say, well, we just need to tweak it a little bit, tweak it, tweak it, tweak it, you know, and it'll mm-hmm. work. Um, and again, maybe that does, I don't know. It's, it's not something I've ever been able to do, but I do think it's like people don't, you know, swing for the fences, whatever analogy you want to pick, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really an interesting argument for, uh, like you said, conviction, uh, courage. I, I don't know what you want to say. I think that's difficult. You know, I, I think anybody that's willing to do a startup to some extent is comfortable with risk. But I think even amongst the people that are comfortable in risk, that has a different, that has a gradient to it. And there are going to be people that are going to be looking for that data to confirm. They're going to be looking for the customers who give them use cases that matter to them to say, oh, well, if I at least move the platform in this direction, then at least I have at least one user that's going to get value out of it. And I'm guessing there are more people that are like them. Um, but I guess you can lose a little bit of control over what you're doing at some point. And, and like you said, maybe that's perceptible in the same way that incrementally changing something that isn't hitting isn't really changing something. Um, it's going to be tough to sort of build something incrementally in that way and then think that there'll be a cohesive whole at the end of it that sort of yeah. has that broad understanding to it. I actually think this is, I talked to a lot of founders and the one thing I can never give them advice on is how to get that initial traction. Like, <laughs> yeah. even if I think they have good ideas, it's like, there has to be an innate desire for something to kind of get it off the ground, right? Like you have to solve like a, a present need. And I always like think of it like it has to be emotional. It's like, I need like a visceral reaction to this idea of this thing you've just offered me. And then I'm like, yes, I want that. And once in a while you see that, right? Like, um, and you've seen some of that in this AI hype wave too. It's like, like you just like, it almost like strokes your imagination. You're like, you can imagine how this could change things for you, right? And I think Century actually had a little bit of that early on because it was like, errors are always painful to debug. We stop that. They're often even more painful to debug in production. We completely stop that because you had visibility and stuff. And I, I think we just hit that like visceral reaction of like, this will make my life so much better. I'm going to use the same right now. And it was accessible. And that was a key thing, right? But I don't like reproducing that I find so extraordinarily difficult. And I think yeah, it, if it was tough, easy to do, you know? right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I think it's like tough. Like is the answer that the idea is bad, that it doesn't have a market or something like that, or that there's some other way you have to approach that kind of zero to one stage, you know? Um, but I don't know, that's like, a, that's a special kind of skill set, I think, to figure that part out. You know, we, like I said, we didn't really have to figure that out. And we're trying to figure it out for new products now. And it is, it's hard for us, you know, we have a massive audience that hypothetically, we can sell great ideas to and it's still difficult, you know, um, it does get a lot easier, mind you. So if you can get one hit, uh, you kind of get a, a few free singles off of that one. One home sure. run, but um, sure. but it's still a difficult thing. Well, great. Well, that's pretty close to the end here. Can you let people know that are fascinated with these blog posts you've been teasing uh, or want to connect with you and follow some more of the stuff that you do? Can you let people know where they can find you? Yeah, uh, I am uh, on, on X or Twitter, or whatever you want to call that thing these days. I am Zeeg, Z-E-E-G. Doesn't mean anything. Don't ask. Um, <laughs> or just search for David Kramer. I hope I'm the most popular one. Uh, I have a blog that, I'm going to try to start writing in more, uh, cra.mr, uh, my last name without an E. 
uh, it should be pretty easy to find hopefully. Um, but yeah, I did, I guess like anybody who wants to chat more, I'm always happy to chat and like, I'm very interactive on Twitter, I would say, or X. Uh, and I love talking about this stuff and interacting with, with folks who share different or similar ideas. So there we go. That's the weekly help part. Get, get some more of that data. All right. Well, that's going to be it for us today. Thank you so much to Dave for being our guest. Thank you uh, to each of you for listening. We hope to see you next time. And of course, as we round out here, I'd like to thank our sponsor, This.Labs, who'd like me to remind you that trusted by names like Meta, Google, and T-Mobile, This.Labs helps bridge the gap from business requirements to tech implementation. Whether you're modernizing legacy systems, ensuring sustainable application architecture, or seeking expert guidance, This.Labs has the experience to help. Discover more at this.co. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O. All right. See you all next time.